What's happening, everybody? This is Damon Johnson, and I am picking it out with Andrew Pope. All right. Well, it's another podcast. Just call picking it out. It's another podcast, y'all. Just call picking it out. got the legendary Damon Johnson in the house. Yeah, and we're going to be picking it up. Well, hey, y'all. Well, my name is Andrew Pope, and appreciate y'all tuning in to Picking It Out once again. Uh had some really killer episodes here lately, man, and uh, glad that y'all keep tuning in. And we're going to have another good one today. Uh, but first of all, I want to say, you know, if y'all are digging the podcast and all the content we're putting out, do me a big favor and go leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy these, because it really helps get it out there. And... uh Subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's Andrew Pope Music. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. Well, I'm real excited to have this guy on. I'm honored to uh, finally talk to him. We actually graduated from the same damn high school, and we've never met, oddly enough. Uh, got a lot of mutual friends, kind of, you know, I don't know how we hadn't crossed paths over the year, man, but this guy, he's played with so many bands. He's played with uh, Alice Cooper. He's played with Thin Lizzy. Uh, he is currently playing with Leonard Skinner. And uh, we just couldn't be happier to have him on with us, Mr. Damon Johnson. How you doing, man? What's happening, Andrew? Thanks for having me on, buddy. I like that Jesse Coulter shirt you got happening there. This was a present from... Uh, good friend shooter jennings which i'm sure you know i don't know i i've been around shooter a couple times and i'm always flattered that he he seems to know who i am <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, man. i i never assume that anybody does so uh, no dude i have no doubt he knows who you are well it's a practice i have maintained i think you know it's really my my dad taught me it's like you walk up to somebody, you just always tell them who you are. Yeah. So so on both occasions, I'm like, hey, Shooter, Damon Johnson. He goes, I know who you are. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'll so tell that, you. That was flattering because uh, his mom and dad are, you know, the high priest and priestess of, of all things music. Oh, no doubt, man. He's a, he's a good guy, and he knows. He's like a damn encyclopedia of music in general. You know, loves it. He's definitely done his homework, and yeah. uh, it's inspiring. It's very inspiring. And some really good things are happening for him uh, on the producer end of things, which is, I think, his true love is producing other artists, being in the studio. And I couldn't be happier for him, man. But, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he gave me that shirt. Uh, kind of a cool picture. I think that was a... Uh, was it Jim Marshall? Was that the photographer that did the 
Christopherson, uh, the famous Christopherson picture? It was Jim Marshall. You know, obviously in the seventies, he was, he was the Annie Leibovitz of, of that era, you know, and, uh, just captured so much timeless stuff. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, uh, you know, we was talking a little bit before we jumped on the air here about, <clears throat> excuse me, our hometown of Geraldine, Alabama. Uh, I was born and raised there, as some of y'all know, um, but you wasn't. You kind of came later. Uh, yeah, way later. Uh, way later. Yeah. Um, it's It's really... Yeah, man, it's, I mean, in a nutshell, my dad, my mom is from Geraldine. She lived there her whole life until she went off to college. And uh, that's where she and my dad met when she was going to Barry College in Rome, Georgia. So they got married and uh, lived in Rome for a minute, but then they moved to Macon with my dad's work. So I was born in Macon, Georgia. And then when I was just like three or four, we moved to South Alabama uh, to a town called Monroeville. And Monroeville was where I went uh, like kindergarten through the ninth grade. And it was such an important time for me, obviously, as it is for all of us as, as kids, you know, becoming teenagers. And, and that was where I first fell in love with music. And um, so, yeah, that, that, that was where I, Started learning to play and buying records and put a little garage band together, that kind of thing. But then all of a sudden my folks decided to move to Geraldine. And that was in the summer between the ninth and tenth grade. And you know, full disclosure, Andrew, I was devastated. <laughs> oh yeah. That's a bad was, that's a bad age, man, leaving all yeah. your friends and everything. Yeah, I was fourteen and mm. you know, had a band, had a girlfriend. Mm. just just felt like i had it all happening and uh but really quickly man once we moved and of course my mom knew so many people being from there and she still had family in town so they were all really uh just supportive in helping me and my siblings get kind of acclimated and i made some friends pretty quick and um you know i played trombone in the marching band and i don't know man in some ways I felt a little bit like a space alien because, uh, you know, nobody moves to Geraldine in the 10th grade. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, I had made some friends with some guys on the football team cause they lived just down the street, which I was grateful for. Cause that's always a big social, uh, you know, it just kind of gave me an in- introduction just to meeting people. Sure. It, it's one thing if the next door neighbor's uncle, says, hey, this is the new kid. It's it's a whole other thing if the quarterback on the football team says, hey, y'all got to meet this guy. Yeah, yeah, so, for sure. So, uh, you know, for the purposes of our, of your podcast, Andrew, you being from Geraldine, I mean, you can appreciate just how, I just remember being so relieved that everyone was so cool and friendly. And, my being obsessed with rock music and playing some electric guitar, man, it was a real valuable social tool for me. Uh, I can, I can see that clearly now at the time, 
it just, you know, it was good for my confidence and it just felt good, man, to know some people. But, you know, I would go, those guys would invite me to go on a camping trip and, you know, they'd say, hey, man, bring your guitar. We want you to play that solo to Stairway to Heaven like you did at the, you know, (laughs) (laughs) down at the basketball gym or whatever. So, you know, word got around pretty fast that this new kid, you know, was a halfway decent guitar player and um, just magical times, man, you know, and I didn't waste my time finding some like-minded guys and we put a little band together and, you know, played in the talent show or whatever. So. And the lunch um, room. Yeah. And the lunch room, man, it's <laughs> yeah. still, it's kind of legendary now. Uh, yeah. Cause, uh, you know, 1980, I can't remember if it was 80 or 81, but, uh, my future girlfriend who also turned out to be my future wife and the the mother of my, my three oldest kids, she was the singer in that band. And, uh, I had a, I had a master plan. <laughs> it's like, well, we're going to ask, we're going to get Jamie to be the singer cause she's beautiful and she can sing a Pat Benatar song. So that'll give us a leg up. And then, two, I figured if we had band practice two or three times, I might have a chance to get to know her better. Yeah. And that's that's kind of exactly how everything how everything went down. But yeah, man, uh, we we played in the talent show there in Geraldine. Uh, I was a junior at that point, and uh, you know there was just several people that came along in that time period. Uh, one of them in particular, my old friend Jimmy Davis. Jimmy, I know Jimmy. Cro- yeah, man. Jimmy was from Crossville, and a few, a few years older than me, two or three. But he was already involved in music. His uh, his nephew Tim Hammond, uh, who I wound up being in three bands with uh, <laughs> later. You know, all these were older guys, so. Yeah. Again, it was just feeding my confidence, the fact that these were older guys. They had been in bands or they were sound men or they were good players. And, you know, they asked me to come and be a part of whatever they were doing. So uh, I kind of credit that day at the cafeteria in sure. uh, in Geraldine. It, it kind of opened some other doors. Yeah, I think you made that lunchroom legendary. Uh, a lot more, a lot more legendary than the food. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, yeah, there's some great stories from back then, man. Yeah. Um, you know, I got a, there's a great picture. Um, I, I, it's on one of these laptops. I'd have to dig it out, Andrew. But man, that year I had bought my first Les Paul. I was ba- I was wor- I was bagging groceries at the Foodland grocery store. Oh yeah, and saving my money, you know, to buy to buy albums with, and um, uh, another Jimmy Davis connection. One of the guys in the band, he was working with Charlie Davidson, who graduated from Geraldine like a year or two before I came to town. He uh, he had this Les Paul, and he kept it for about a week. And as Charlie has done his entire life, he'll get a guitar, play it a week, and say, I don't know, I don't know, and he'll go trade it for something else. <laughs> well, I took one look at that wine red, you know, Gibson Les Paul Custom, and I was like, man, I'm in love. And 
So I think he sold it to me for six hundred bucks. And oh, um, man, I still got that guitar. It's it's right over there. Wow. In my little uh, little shelf of the few guitars that I that I have. And uh, so yeah, man, that thing really. It was my, it was my partner, uh, for the next twenty years, relentlessly. Um, you know, all through the bands I was in, leaving Geraldine, moving to Birmingham, all those early early Brother Kane records. I wrote the songs on that guitar, recorded on, and so. Uh, but the picture's great, man, because I remember we uh, that that year we won the talent show. We played. Hit me with your best shot that Jamie sang. And then we played Give Me Three Steps by Skinhead. How about that? And so it's just wild, man. You know, that that uh you know, that band in particular was such an important part in all of our lives and it's just crazy to think now that here we are twenty twenty three and um you know, it's just uh you would think by this time, Andrew, I would have the proper adjectives to describe what it what it feels like, and I still don't. I don't have them, and I don't know if I ever will. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's so. a good thing. But it's such an honor, and uh, I mean, you can't make this stuff up, man. Yeah, you can't you can't make it up. Some kid growing up in a small rural town, loving southern rock and classic rock, and um, you know, hell, man, my biggest dream about Skinner was that I could figure out the right way to play the solo in, in you know, Saturday Night Special. Oh, yeah. It, it never occurred to me to think that my band would open for Skinner one day and certainly didn't occur to me that I would be playing guitar in Leonard Skinner one day. So uh, I'm grateful, man. You know, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine that because my whole life man i mean every leonard skinner record you know they're one of those bands that just i think they're the best rock band of all time that's just that's just what i think because you listen to those records man you don't have to skip a song you know i was just talking to my with my buddy about that the other day you do not have to skip one single song i love the album brothers i love toy caldwell uh, I love Wet Willie. I love all kinds of of rock, but you know some of the songs on those albums, I tend to skip. You know, uh, I've got my favorites, but Skinner, yeah. man, my God, what material! It just, yeah. I mean, we've been saying that you know our whole lives, um, and it's just wild that here we are. You know, fifty years since that debut album got released and that that adoration respect love of those songs for all of us as fans musicians whatever that love just has grown and that that uh it's just so i i don't know what other band really to compare it to andrew you know, the Eagles certainly have some incredible songs, you know, songs that, that not just speak to people's head, but to their heart. Sure. A uh, lot of, so many great classic rock bands, you know, uh, there's been a lot of comparisons drawn between uh, the great uh, 
you know, the great British band Foreigner, Mick Jones and Foreigner. You yeah. know, they've been out there playing for quite some time. You know, none of the guys are original members, and Mick comes out from time to time and plays when he when he feels like it. Yeah. But those those songs are timeless and classic and all that. Do they have a song that touches people the way Simple Man does, or the way Tuesday's Gone does, or the way Freebird does? I would say no. I'm not. I'm not in any way diminishing, you know, the reach of, of a band like that. And you can you can go through so many classic rock bands and 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 look at it like that. Those Skinner songs. I mean, they're like gospel songs, man. That's a perfect way of putting it. They're like gospel songs. And I've had the incredible fulfillment of getting to see that every night from the stage, looking out at the crowd. And, you know, you play a song like Tuesday's Gone. And yes. I pretty much, man, without fail, there's a grown man standing out there just sobbing. Um, I mean, Ronnie Van Zant was like 22 years old, man. <laughs> I know when he wrote that. That's that's unfathomable. Yeah. That is unfathomable. The same goes for Simple Man. The same goes for those incredible lyrics to Freebird. Um, you know, and I I do think too, brother. It's worth noting. I mean, I think some of that has to do with that crossroads that Skinner had between classic rock and country. Yeah. Ronnie was such, he was every bit as much devoted to learning from great country singers and songwriters as he was from his favorite rock artists, maybe even more so, maybe more so. Uh, obsessed with Merle Haggard. Yeah. Obsessed with Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, all, all that stuff. So, uh, his his gift for storytelling was certainly fed by those writers every bit as much as it was by the Beatles or the Stones or any Absolutely. other band you want to name. Absolutely, without a doubt. Oh, uh, I got to tell you something quick. He's talking about Tuesday's Gone. That song right there is the reason that I ever wanted to pick up an electric guitar because I wanted to mimic Gary's parts in that song. Um. I remember picking up electric guitar when I was like 14. Uh, I had got for Christmas, I had got like a PV first act combo amp and electric guitar from uh, Clifton's Boaz Music and Sound. And uh, man, I didn't even know the chords. See, I started on piano when I was younger, so I knew music and I could hear it, but I couldn't read it. Oh, uh, Never really had an interest in reading it. I just kind of would play what I heard in my head, I guess. But, man, that song is my favorite song of all time. Like, when the day comes when I die, it's going to be on a Tuesday. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm totally convinced of it. And man, you've, already, would, you've already got this planned out. Man, I, like I, I, th I, like I think it. subconsciously I think I do. But it's so connected to me and me as a musician you know that was my that was the song that I learned those lead parts. There's it to, it to this day I can listen to that song, whether it's live at the Fox the way they did the intro part. You know it's kind of different. I mean it, I, I it just talks to me. 
on a whole different level. Um, that's the song. And then I learned the chords to my homes in Alabama. That was the first song I learned to play the chords to. But Tuesday's Gone, by far, is that one's it for me. And it is emotional. Yeah, man. It's, uh, you know, that's kind of the generic question I get asked a lot, which I never get tired of answering when people say, hey, what's your favorite Skinner song to play? Yeah. And and that's the one. Tuesday's Gone is, is the one. Um, I got, I guess it was July of 2021 when I got the phone call from, from Ricky and from Johnny. And they just, you know, they told me what was happening and that they had these dates booked and that Gary wasn't going to be able to fulfill them. And they'd already rescheduled all these concerts twice because of COVID. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it worked out. I had a few things on my schedule I had to shuffle around, but I was happy to do it and grateful. But they sent me the set list and I just set about kind of learning the entire thing as in bulk, you know. So I sat right here at this desk in this chair and, you know, I had a sheet of paper on the wall with all the songs and I just started running them and um you know, growing up on that music like I did, Andrew, I, I already had a fairly good handle on which parts were Gary's. Sure. And of course now we live in the age of the internet. So I if I had a hard question on something, I could just pull it up on YouTube and right. you know, some dudes out there with his iPhone yeah. And he, he doesn't move it off of Gary Rosington. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, right. You know, I could, I was able to watch a couple of those and, and figure some stuff out. But man, the first show I played with him was this giant festival in Minnesota. And, you know, we had, we had one rehearsal and that was all we had time for. And then we went and played that show. And of course, I was excited. I was nervous. Uh, all the things you know you can imagine. But I'm telling you this story to tell you that I was not prepared emotionally for Tuesday's Gone. And when we played that live, uh, I think that was the moment that the whole thing kind of just hit me right between the eyes. The the you know the gravity of what was happening. Um, and listen, at that time. You know, we the whole band, the whole organization was just kind of taking it one step at a time. They're like, well, hey, we need you to do these six shows. Yeah. And they were hoping Gary's coming back. Right. And I, I said, no problem. No problem. And, of course, six shows turned into six weeks, turned into the next year. And, you know, you know the story. So, um, but playing Tuesday's gone at that big festival in Minneapolis in front of that crowd. And, um, you know, I, I've got so much respect for that band and respect for Gary. You know, he's on my Mount Rushmore biggest guitar influences always has been. So I wasn't even questioning that there would be people in the audience looking up on the stage and going, who the hell is that guy? Yeah. And who does he, who does he think he is standing there playing no song? You know, because mm. Gary's position in Skinner has been uh, uh, omnipresent. Like, he's been in every Skinner show 
from the day the band started in the late 60s, early 70s until two years ago. And I get that. So I wasn't like, I didn't have any delusions, man, that there would be people out there going, oh, my God, it ain't the same without Gary. And it's not the same without Gary. It never will be. Sure. Um, but I just think, man, some of the, you know, playing playing with Alice Cooper, playing with Thin Lizzy, those kind of bigger gigs had prepared me for something like that just from a performing standpoint. Yeah. And, you know, Thin Lizzy has a similarity with Skinner because it doesn't have the original singer, the guy that wrote the songs, you know. So I know what it feels like to, to get up in front of a crowd and, and try to present the songs as best you can with as much respect as possible. So I guess what I'm trying to say, Andrew, is that, you know, that was a, I'll never forget that show. And, you know, I'm just so grateful to the Skinner fan base. You know, they've been incredible to me. They've been very appreciative. Uh, they, for the most part, man, everybody's been humble. I've certainly been committed to being as humble as possible in, in every situation. And I, that's not going to change, uh, you know, going forward. Because I think the songs deserve that. Gary deserves that. All the all the original band members that have that have passed passed on, uh, man, they just created something. Uh, you know, if you if you believe in God and you believe in the ever after, you can bet those guys are all sitting around looking down, going, "Wow." Look at what we did. Look at what we did. Look at the impact it's had on the world. And now look at this group of guys and girls that are continuing to carry it on into the next generations. Um, again, brother, I don't know what else to compare it to. I, I don't know that there's a, a similar story in the history of, of classic rock. Well, I don't, I don't either, you know, uh, legendary by far you know just they're 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 it for me man as far as i love all kinds of music but man growing up for me it was just skinnered and it was hank jr for the most part but throw whalen in throw haggard in even the 90s man you know rob thomas and matchbox 20 the stuff they were doing uh all of it combined you know and gospel you know, being from the small town, going to church, the gospel music was a big part. Uh, it's, it's just, it's like a big ball. <laughs> it's like all rolled up, you know, a, like a beautiful big ball of music that's just, it's just there in my head. And I can hear a song and, you know, a lot of people say that it'll take you back to a spot uh, like just magic almost. It, music is so emotional. Um, it's got me through times and I'm sure it has you that nothing else would get you through. It's amazing. There's no doubt, buddy. There is no doubt. I, uh, I can look back at different points in my life where music kind of was a reset for me. Um, you know, the last couple years have been so busy, uh, especially coming out of COVID. We were all so inactive for so long. And then once things got busy again, 
you just started running as fast as possible because you're like, man, we got to make up for lost time or I don't ever want to be out of work like that ever again, you know, whatever. But I got so busy that I wasn't listening to as much music as I as I normally would. And uh, just recently, Andrew, I was out for a walk and you know, back during the pandemic, man, that was like a daily thing. It's what kept me from going out of my mind is I just put on my headphones and hit the pavement and I would listen to whatever, all kinds of stuff. So I had a chance to do that again recently. And it just, I, you know, literally, man, in the last few weeks, I mean, it's been such a heavy month with Gary's passing and the funeral. And uh, to your point, music it is a savior in its own way. It, it, it soothes the soul and it will every time if you'll let it, if you'll let it, it it'll, it'll do it. And as for this discussion we're having, it just, it puts a bright light on those Skinner songs, the influences that Ronnie Van Zandt had to write those kinds of lyrics and, you know, let's be real, buddy. That's the thing that you and I have in common based on where we're from, where we grew up. Um, I was talking about being so devastated when I had to move to Geraldine. And, you know, man, in retrospect, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It was yeah. such a blessing. And all the great things that have happened in my life, they all kind of started right there. You know, my family, my work, my my music, my career. So I just think it's the lyrics, man. I, I think, you know, I've done so many podcasts like yours, Andrew, but, you know, a lot of those guys are all hard rock and metal guys. And the measuring stick for them typically is the sound. Sure. You know, the guitars, the technical component, nothing wrong with that. I get no. all of that. I, all of that certain. That stuff all had an impact on me as well. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know that I've ever listened to Eddie Van Halen, who I adore, play a guitar solo that brought me to tears. Right. I've listened to so many songs in my life that have brought me to tears. And Ronnie Van Zant wrote some of them. Toy Caldwell jimmy hall um you know just the great r&b singers the music that we were able to get more get exposed to because we were from the south yeah you know all the muscle souls stuff yeah um i remember being a kid hearing hey those guys in muscle souls played on this aretha franklin record wilson pickett and you know none of my None of my heavy metal friends are listening to Wilson Pickett. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't, they don't even want to know. Yeah, and that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. But I do feel like it has served me in such an incredible way to be from Northeast Alabama and just live and grow up in that melting pot of all that, all that music. Because just like you, man. You're yeah. as big a fan of Hank Jr. as you are of Skinner. Yeah. And, you know, it's fun for me now being in Skinner and getting to see that. You know, you see it in the crowd. 
you see people that from all walks of life, uh, you know, obviously it's a challenge this day and age we live in now, man. Everything is so divided and segmented, and it's like you're either on this side or you're on that side. There's a real coming together of all of that at Skinner concerts. And uh, for the most part, people leave all that stuff at home, or mm-hmm. they, they, leave, they leave it in their car, and they come in ready to, to celebrate this great music that brings people together. And, you know, man, credit to, to Johnny Van Zandt. Johnny's done an incredible job for 35 years. Sure. You know, honoring his brother and honoring that band. And he is the kindest, most good-hearted person I maybe have ever met. Uh, he, he easily could have gone another direction with yeah. his with his attitude or showbiz or whatever. And I promise you, man, that guy's the same guy right now, you know, that he was when, when Ronnie was still alive. And um, I don't know, man, I'm just really proud of that. I'm proud to be in the band fronted by Johnny and he just brings everybody together. And um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it, man. It's just, yeah. it's just such a, I don't know. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be 59, Andrew, my next birthday in July. I'm going to be 59. I got, I got a big number 60 coming over the dashboard fast, <laughs> you know, uh, just can't fathom that, you know, I would be experiencing what I feel is the most fulfilling musical time of my whole career. Because hey, I'm, you know, I've put Brother Kane back together. We're playing some shows. I'm just such a such a thrill, man, to 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 be a part of that. And I'm I'm certainly proud of those songs as well. So I feel like I'm getting to kind of kind of live the best of both worlds. Go play with Skinner and do the big shows, and you know, play some of my favorite music of my whole lifetime. Yeah. And then I can also shift gears and and put on my artist hat and get, get back behind the microphone and, and sing my songs and tell my stories as well. Uh, I don't take any of that. I don't take any of that for granted, buddy. I'm really, really having a, having a ball right now. Yeah. I think that's just as important, you know, uh, doing your, doing your artist thing still and keeping you out, out, out there and keep writing. You know, one thing I have struggled with, uh, in the past, two or three years is writing as much as I previously did. I still write, but I mean, you know, I guess just, uh, bills and life and everything gets in the way, man, and kind of is a distraction. And, uh, I need to get back to a lot of that, but that's important. Well, it is a big distraction, buddy. And, and that, and that affects all of us. Yeah. Uh, I'd be lying to tell you that I don't struggle with it myself. You know, it's, I'm so blessed to have an amazing family that I feel like supports me following my bliss, you know? Oh yeah. My, my, my wife runs a tight ship around here just so I can go out and, and swing that Les Paul around and, and, and play music for a living. So I don't, uh, you know, they, they always are my number one priority. And, but 
it is difficult, man. It's hard to it's hard to shut off the the responsibilities. Let's call it what it is: the responsibilities of, of adult life. Yeah, and um, so it, you know the balance exists, but it's not going to come easy. You got to put in the effort to find it, and uh, I'd love to tell you that it gets easier as as you get older, but it hasn't. You know, it's uh, I guess in some ways I try to treat it like a professional athlete. You know, you got to train. You have to train. Yeah. And, uh, you know, LeBron James is one of the greatest basketball players of all time, but he's still out there every day yep. take, taking free throws, practicing mm-hmm. that jump shot, doing just the basic things, man, that he was doing when he was in middle school. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I make little lists sometimes. I hang them on my bathroom mirror. Yeah. Two hours today. Write songs, no matter what. Turn off the phone. Turn off the television. Don't go to the gym. Sit down, pen and paper, cup of coffee if you need it. Let's go. <laughs> it's it's an effort. It takes an effort for sure. Well, what uh, what took you to Birmingham out of high school? Well, so right out of high school, I went to junior college in Boaz at Sneed State. Sneed, yeah. And I, yeah, and I was still living at home, working at the grocery store, still had a band, you know, and we were playing around a little bit. Um, and then I guess it was around 84, 85 is when I moved into an apartment in Gunnersville, and I started playing with Pat Upton, Pat Upton yeah. and head, Headline. Uh, uh-oh, there went my light. What happened? <laughs> Let's try it. There we go. Sorry about that, buddy. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, so I I started playing guitar in Pat Upton's band at a, at a great venue called PJ's Alley. And, you know, that was my first time living away from home. I had a roommate, my buddy Gene Pledger. And um, Jamie and I, we weren't married yet, but she had moved into her own apartment and she was working at that club at that point. And I was sort of in between, do I move to, do I, do I start my junior year of college? I was getting ready to transfer to Auburn because I got a electrical engineering, um, associates degree. I did all that pre-engineering stuff that Snead. Okay. So, I, so I was going to transfer to Auburn and start my junior year there. But this band, and Gunnersville headline was was really great, man. And we were playing four nights a week. You know, Pat paid us pretty good, and I was able to pay my bills. And so the thing that moved us to Birmingham is headline went down to Birmingham to play uh, in five points at this uh, great venue called Louie Louie that was there forever, and. On Tuesdays and Wednesday nights, it was no cover night. And the people that ran the club would have different bands come in that couldn't necessarily play on the weekends and sell any tickets. Yeah. It was sort of give, give them a chance to play and let people hear about it. Yeah. Well, uh, Benji Burford, uh, Jim Burford, sorry. Jim Burford and his wife at the time, Sally, they ran that club. Well, they certainly knew who Pat Upton was. Um, 
And so they're like, yeah, let's have Pat and his band come down and do Tuesday, Wednesday night. So we played that week. Um, man, I should, I, I want to say that was 1985, Andrew. And the singer for a very, very popular regional band called Split the Dark, Mark Phillips, he came in on the Tuesday. He just happened to come in and he heard us. And uh, we asked him to get up and sit in because he was kind of a rock star to us, man. Uh, Split the Dart was a big deal regionally. His previous band, Hotel, had put out two records on MCA Records, and I used to hear their songs on the radio on Q104 out of Gadsden. You know, so just that, you know, made him, you know, a big deal. <laughs> really a big deal. So Mark got up and sat in with us. And then the next night, the Wednesday night, he came back in and he brought his manager with him. And uh, if my buddy Gene Pledger was on this call with us, he would tell you that he knew what was happening the minute those two guys walked <laughs> in the door. I did not. Yeah. I just went on about my business getting ready to play the second night, you know. But, uh, again, Gino tells the story. He was he was tightening up his drum kit before that first set. And then he saw those two guys like wave at me. And I walked up these steps to go up and meet with them. And Gino says, man, I knew that was it. We were going to lose you. They were going to take you. <laughs> 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 and that's exactly what they did. They, uh, about a week or two later, I got a phone call and they, they offered me a you know a position and split the dark and Andrew at that point man I I wouldn't have been more excited if you know Robert Plant or David Bowie had a call it was yeah. such a big big deal so I stayed in Gunnersville for a little while Jamie and I had got married uh, we were expecting our first child so that was a heavy time man and you know we decided at some point that it made more sense for for us to live in Birmingham since I was in Split the Dark. So we moved uh, that uh, in 87 is when I moved down there, uh, like September, I think, of 87 is when it was. And, you know, no way of knowing, man, that Birmingham was going to change my life again. And it certainly did. And that manager that came into the club that night, Conrad Rayfield, uh, Conrad played maximum role in me he, helping me put Brother Kane together, helped us shop it for a record deal and just kind of put the whole help put the whole infrastructure together. None of that stuff would have happened without Conrad. So he was a pivotal, pivotal figure in my life. And he's one of my closest friends to this day. So uh, to say that Birmingham also changed my life uh, is an understatement. That's kind of a side note here. He's talking about Pat Upton. Did he ever give you any, uh, wisdom pass down any wisdom or knowledge about publishing or songwriting or any or anything at all to do with the music business he talked about it a little bit never in a way that he was preachy or never in a way of saying well here's how i did it and this is the right way and there is no other way yeah he just simply said to me that he held on to his publishing for his big hit song and you know, for artists that came up at the time that Pat did, I mean, that song was a hit. Oh, I think I think it was seventy one or seventy two. 
somewhere in there. Um, it's very rare that people were able to hold on to their publishing. Usually if you were going to get the record deal, you had to sign away your publishing as well. They sort of went hand in hand. Yeah. And, and Pat was able to hang on to it. And that's why the guy literally had one hit song his whole life. He wrote it 100% on his own and he was able to live forever yeah. on, on that, you know, and raise a family. And so, um, you know, Pat was always very soulful in his, he, he just sort of followed whatever felt good. I rarely saw him get upset or frustrated. Uh, he loved music, obviously born with such a gift. His voice was so unique. And, um, you know, I guess for, for, again, for us from Sand Mountain, I mean, Pat was kind of everybody's first, you know, rock star. Yeah. He, he was on a vinyl record. His song was on the radio. You know, they played it on American Bandstand. I mean, it was a big, big, big yeah. deal. Spiral Staircase, right? Yeah. Yeah. Spiral Staircase. So I had heard about Pat my whole life, you know, from my mom because they went to high school. They went to Geraldine together. Um, but yeah, that was another big vote of confidence to have Pat up and hear me play and go, yeah, you're. You're a great player. You know, you, the, the, the job, the position in my house band is yours if you want it. And, of course, I'd already been in a band with, with Tim Hammond. And, um, and so Gene and I met. That, you know, we, we had known each other prior to that. But that's when I met Mark Thompson and Brad Gaither. And then, you know, the, the five of us, what is that, five, six of us made up uh, – made up headline jimmy davis on sound <laughs> and, he, and he's still on sound uh, he's still on sound and lights and uh one of the jimmy's best damn ones around one of the best damn ones around um but yeah man so pat was uh you know also incredibly encouraging for me and good for my confidence and uh you know just just confirm that i was on the right path yeah well the brother kane thing started and it was kind of a Probably a whirlwind after that for a little while, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. Um, I've talked about it many times, Andrew. I had zero desire to be the lead singer. I did not. It, I, I didn't mind singing. You know, I would sing a couple cover tunes in the club days <clears throat> to give the singer a break so he's not just blowing his voice out all night. There to go to piss or something while you're... Yeah, totally, <laughs> yeah. totally, man. Literally. It was yeah. that simple. It was that, yeah. that was the extent of it. I was not harboring some secret desire that, well, that's going to be me in the yeah. middle. I want all the lights on me. I want all the attention. Yeah. And, um, just weird how the universe works. Um, cause I, I put that band, uh, the original band was called child. I was just a guitar player and, we started writing and recording. <clears throat> Conrad Rayfield helped us with those demos and all of that. And we'd already met the A&R guy from Virgin Records who really liked the songs and he loved my guitar playing. Um, you know, man, it's that cliched term that people throw around like, well, this guy's a star. Yeah. I, I don't know what that is. To me, a star is Freddie Mercury. A star is David Bowie. I certainly was neither one of those guys. But 
I knew he meant it in the way of like, well, yeah, this guy gets on stage and plays guitar and he has something that connects with the, with the, with the audience. And so I was like, okay, cool. Well, you know, help me find a singer that has that same thing. And then we're going to go off and be Led Zeppelin. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I tried very hard, man, for the better part of a year and a half to do just that. And, uh, you know, we just, we weren't coming up with anything. We were running out of time, running out of money. And then that A&R guy heard me sing some cover songs one night, you know, in the bars to to give the singer a break. And that's kind of what started it all. So, wow. you know, six months later, we're in L.A. recording the first record. Uh, that was in 92. The very next summer, Got No Shame starts its way up the rock charts and, that fall, we were out with Skinner and Bad Company and Robert Plant, and Got No Shame went to number one on the rock, you know, on the on the rock charts. And yeah, man, it was kind of a whirlwind. And I just felt like from 1993 until the band broke up in kind of the end of 1999, I just felt like I was trying to keep up. I, mm-hmm. I don't feel like I was ever kind of at peace or yeah. like. Uh, comfortable in my own skin. That's what I'm trying to say. I was, I was never comfortable in my own skin. And a lot of that was because I just set myself up for that, man. You can't, you can't just decide to become the singer one day and then be opening for Robert Plant the next year and have the minerals to, (laughs) to, you know, it's like, that's, that's crazy making, man. That's, that's crazy. And the fact that I didn't, you know, crash a car or go to jail or get hurt physically or hurt someone else physically. The fact that I made it through that as unscathed as I did is a, is a, is a blessing in and of itself. Um, you know, man, I, I guess I'm really lucky that, you know, drugs and alcohol has never been a priority. I've, I'm certainly have never been a teetotaler, but I was just always more concerned with, you know, I gotta, I gotta take care of my voice. I gotta sing tomorrow night. Uh, you know, we gotta get to, we gotta get from Cleveland to Des Moines. So somebody's gonna have to drive that van. So I'll drive it, you know, whatever, whatever it took. Um, but yeah, brother came in, uh, huge life change, incredible achievements. Um, you know, I met, my songwriting partner, Marty Fredrickson, uh, Marty taught me so much about songwriting. Uh, I had always written music and riffs and chord progressions and things like that, but he taught me how to think about the vocal melody and, mm-hmm. and arrangements and just you know, help me take it to the next level very quickly because I did not have time to waste. I didn't have the luxury of developing over, you know, even months it's like dude you got to go right now there's yeah. no <laughs> like like here's the itinerary first gig is in three months uh you better let you better figure this out fast yeah and opening for some of these bands that you grew up idolizing and just playing their records playing the hell out of them getting to meet some of these guys that that probably was like a whole nother cool factor you know as they say to the to the whole thing 
on top of what you're accomplishing, you're also getting to experience these things, you know? Yeah, man, it was, um, you know, again, I wasn't prepared for it. I do, I do give my parents a lot of credit. They, they, they definitely had set an example to be confident socially. You know, I was never uncomfortable meeting someone yeah. uh, on a business level, on a musical level. So whenever Brother Kane would get to, to open for some of these big bands, I think, you know, I just knew pretty quickly, man, they're just people like we are. They, they put they put their boots on one at a time, just like me. So um, it always kind of helped get even closer to these people, the more laid back and cool that I was. So whether it was meeting Robert Plant, meeting Gary Rosington, meeting Joe Perry and Steven Tyler, Eddie Van Halen, all those guys were heroes to me, man, coming up. So to be able to sit in catering and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the first time I met Eddie, man, his wife Valerie was there and they had just had their son, Wolfgang. And, you know, I had kids myself. I already had three kids at that point, Andrew. So that was another thing that helped keep me grounded. Um, cause I wasn't just out there going buck wild. Yeah. I knew I had, I knew I had people at home depending on me and counting on me to come home safe and, um, so it helped when I met these heroes and, um, you know, even got to sit in the room and write some songs with some of them that, uh, you know, that was really the most fun really and truly, man. Uh, if you're a professional musician, you're going to get to share the stage with some big, big acts sooner yeah. or later. It's just going to happen. It's just, it's just how it works. But, uh, you know, to sit down at a table with, Sammy Hagar and pen and paper and cup of coffee and go, Hey man, let's write something. Mm-hmm. That was, that was special. That was special. Um, you know, certainly when I started playing with Alice Cooper a few years later, it was the same thing. So, uh, yeah, man, I guess, I guess I figured out pretty quickly that I belonged. I belonged there. I had every bit as much a right to be there as anybody. Uh, do I wish I had figured that out sooner? Maybe. You know, that's what that small town upbringing did. I, there was there was certainly a little bit of that holy shit factor yeah. for me yeah. in the early years. Yeah. Of just like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. How is this happening? Uh, but the sooner you can believe it, the sooner you become a professional. It's like, yeah, man, I... I got every bit of right to be here. I, I love music. I put in the time. I work just as hard. I should, I, I should be at this party as much as they are. Yeah, I'm right. Yeah, man. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm similar, man. You know, I've been in the room with, uh, heroes, heroes, you know, Bobby bear, you know, he was the first person to sit and listen to my record. That's uh, awesome. All the way through. He had like a, a red solo cup, and uh, he was dipping snuff. And, you know, his phone rang a couple times. He just hit the button on it and just ignored it. He listened. This, my, and my album 63 minutes, but he listened to every word. We wow. written songs together. But I don't say, hey, man, you know, I grew up on your shit. I, you know, love you, idolize you. I'm not that guy to anybody I've ever met. 
I'm not that guy. <clears throat> Listen, man, they, they you know yourself. Ultimately, that's not what they want to hear. No, they hear it everywhere. They hear it everywhere. They are something about you has brought you in mm. their path. Yeah. So it's a new discovery for them as much as it's a discovery for you. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And at the end of the day, if you can find some common ground, that's how relationships get started. Sure. It goes from being an acquaintance to having a relationship or a friendship. It does. Those aren't going to happen if you're just sitting there blowing smoke up somebody's ass the whole time. No, no, they're not. And, you know, uh, on the inside, maybe you're kind of going batshit crazy. Yeah. You kind of keep that in. I mean, you don't, you know, like meeting Merle Haggard, getting Merle Haggard's phone number, you know, he gave me. Uh, Shit, dude. That's. uh, uh, and, and, And Jeff Cook, Jeff Cook introduced me to him. So that's even, wow. you know how that kind of thing is. It's like, I wasn't waiting to meet him. I mean, Jeff's like, hey, Merle, this is, you know, good singer, songwriter, and good friend of mine. That That's a whole nother thing. But you keep that's it in awesome, here. Uh, it, it, you can't, no matter what, you can't take those moments away. So I've had a little bit of them. You've had a lot of bit of them, I guess, since we're from Geraldine, we can say it like that. Uh, uh, yeah, man. Listen, let me say this to you, Andrew. Congratulations on that. That's incredible. You know, Bobby Bear, badass. Jeff Cook was a badass. And the fact that Jeff Cook introduced you to Merle Haggard, come on, dude. Yeah. That, 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 that's about like meeting the Pope right there. That's about oh, yeah. as, that's as big as it gets. Um, and you know, Merle, I'm, I'm, we were talking just like me and you was talking. Yeah. I'm happy for you, buddy. That's, uh, yeah, that's the equivalent of me meeting Bob Dylan, who I have not met. Really? You meeting Merle Haggard would be like me meeting Dylan. Or, or if I hadn't met Merle himself, I've, I've got buddies that played with Merle, and I've, I've asked to hear every story. You know, yeah. like, man, tell me, tell me what that was like. Yeah, yeah. A uh, lot of Merle Haggard was played at my house as a kid. Uh, my parents, their tastes definitely lean more popular music and country music. Uh, lots. Johnny Cash, Merle, those two were the most played thing in my house. Uh, plenty of Willie, some Waylon, Hank Williams. Um, you know, and then both my parents were into just the Kind of the, the the super poppy stuff of the day, you know, Andy Williams and Perry Como and yeah, Engelbert Humberdinck and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my dad was just a, you know, he was just a country boy from Georgia. So all those artists that you and I, yeah, revere and respect, you know, he was he was a fan of that stuff, like so many millions of other people, you know, growing up growing up and being exposed to that. But, uh, yeah, man, you know, I think we've got a lot to be proud of coming from where we do, Andrew. And, um, you know, thinking about getting to talk to you today and the commonality of where we're from. I mean, I've also said this before. There's there's guys that are better guitar players than me, better songwriters, certainly better singers. But there ain't too many other men that are going to outwork me. 
Nobody works harder than me. Nobody. Nobody. And that's all I can control. I can't control my gift as a singer. Look, I'm a good singer. I'm not a gifted singer. I, hell, <laughs> I man, like you, that. <laughs> let me tell you something, buddy. You, you've got a gift. You know, great singers are born with that. It's just, you know, and, and, and they're able to take that out into the world. I'm more of a scrapper. I had to take what I had and then find a way to make it work. I do believe I'm authentic and people believe me when yeah. I, when I sing, but, uh, the singing, the singing stuff was, took a lot of work. It still takes a lot of work, but, uh, you know, my point is, man, we growing up where we did and that combination of the musical influences and working hard, treating people with respect, being open-minded, all of that, man, is just, you can't put a price on it. It's so valuable. I wish more people would do that, would practice all this. I really do. I think it'd be, really, I mean, the world would be a better place. Uh, I, I didn't, that covers a lot of ground, you know, treating people with respect. Agreeing to disagree is a big damn thing that we used to kind of have and we don't seem to have anymore, but we won't get into all that. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, man, it's definitely a different time now. And uh, yeah, the, I guess if there's any hope on the horizon is that most good folks with common sense, they, they're starting to recognize that and realize like, yeah, man, you know what? We've all, we've all kind of drenched ourselves in this social media stuff now for a good decade. And just like anything else, man, there's good things about it. There's dangerous things about it. Absolutely. And and now it's starting to affect our way of life. Now it's starting to, you know, cause some divides in us philosophically. And yeah. uh, I think there's some, I think we're going to get over it. I, there's, this country has just proven itself to be resilient time and time again. <clears throat> I have that hope. I have that optimism uh, that we're going to figure it out. But I, I just hope we figure it out quick. <laughs> oh, man, I do, too. I really do, too. Uh, well, you know, going back through some of this stuff here, man, I mean, after the Brother Kane thing, well, how did that How did that kind of end or temporarily end? The way that ended, Andrew, was a combination of there were so many changes at our record company. Uh, yeah, man, over those, over those seven years, we had three different record label presidents. Mm. We had three different heads of promotion. We had three different product managers, meaning that's the person that oversees making sure your CDs are in the stores. God. And then we had two different A&R men. So it lit, it literally felt like every album we were starting from scratch. Yeah. So that was exhausting, especially for me as the singer. Mm -hmm. Secondly, everything was changing at, at rock radio. Uh, by 1998, there was nothing really taken off at rock radio that sounded anything like us. You know, that was the advent of bands like Korn and Limp Bizkit. Yeah. And then the, the, the more melodic groups like Matchbox 20 and Collective Soul and the Goo Goo Dolls, they were now on the pop station. 
Mm -hmm. So Brother Kane just didn't have a place to live inside that anymore. And then thirdly, we were all just a mess. We'd been on the road for seven years. Um, every, every possible hang up you could have, somebody had it, you know, somebody's strung out on, on Coke. Somebody's got a drinking problem. Everybody's marriages were in the toilet, mine included. Mm -hmm. So we just sort of gave up. It's like, man, this ain't, this is not fun anymore. We're not, we're not growing. We're not growing as a band. We're not growing as a business. And we just felt like there was a lot of apathy around. So uh, I wish I had a sexier answer for you than that, man. But we just, it was just like, I, I cried uncle. Like, I've had enough. Let me up. I've had enough. Yeah. <laughs> and So that, that was it, man. And I, uh, I, I, was, I was about to get a divorce. I met my, my future wife shortly after that. I had to figure out about my kids and how to get that stable. You know, I just went back to the clubs and playing covers and I kept writing, not really sure what I was going to do. I had a couple of cool things come my way that, you know, were good experiences and just kept me in it. Yeah. But nothing really concrete happened for about four years. And when I got the call to play with Alice Cooper, so um, you know, Brother Kane, man, all for all of the struggles we had in Brother Kane, there were so many good things that we accomplished. And all the cool things that came for me after that all happened because of Brother Kane. Sure. I could have I could have never played with Alice Cooper or John Waite or Thin Lizzy yeah. had it not been had it not been for Brother Kane. So uh I guess there's that word perspective again, man. Just depends on how you look at it. I, you know, I could be jaded and cynical about how that thing ended, or I could look at it like, well, we, we did some good stuff. I learned a lot and I'm going to take that into my next. Yeah. Into the future, whatever the future becomes, We're, I'm going to take this and, and move forward. So right. thankfully that, that was, thankfully that was my headspace. How did the uh, the damn Yankees thing? I, I I really want to know about that. Yeah, man, that um, I've said forever. I was in the damn Yankees for about fifteen minutes. Yeah, <laughs> and that's about what it felt like. So, Brother Kane ends. I told you I kept writing, mm -hmm. and I had a batch of songs that I was thinking about making a solo record with. And these songs were very, they leaned more towards the melodic. It, it wasn't heavy at all. Um, just kind of pop songs with guitar, not blues rock at all, man. Very, um, I don't know, man. I mean, maybe Matchbox 20 is even a decent comparison Kind of alternative rock or just a little, a little alternative, good melodies, simple songs, simple yeah. chords, nothing, right. no flashy guitar stuff whatsoever. It was all songs you could sing in the shower, literally. Sure. So I 
had a cassette, I had a CD of these songs, and there's this kind of famous A and R guy, John Kalodner, who was the who was the the brains behind so many great records in the late '80s and throughout the '90s. A uh, pivotal figure in Aerosmith's rebirth, you know, yeah. all that all that big success they had during the MTV days of the '90s. Anyway, John asked to hear my songs, and I sent him the CD. And he called me one day, and he said, "Jack Blades is here. He loves these songs." he wants to talk to you about writing for a new damn Yankees record. Oh. And I said, yeah, man, that would be cool. So I went to Jack's house in uh, Northern California and it just so turns out that Ted Nugent was there John Kalodner, the A&R guy, was there. And Michael Cardelloni, the drummer, was there. And we all plugged in and played together. And that was when they explained to me that they were going to make a new Damn Yankees record, but that Tommy Shaw wasn't able to commit to it full time because he had just acquired the rights to the name Sticks. Mm. They they had parted ways with Dennis DeYoung, their original lead singer, one of the lead singers. So now it was Tommy and J.Y. Young and then, you know, whoever else was in the band at that time. So they had to focus on that. Tommy gave them his blessing to bring in somebody else. And full disclosure, Andrew, I had nothing going on. I mean, I had nothing going on. So to get a call from Kalodner like that, um, I wasn't necessarily a fan of damn Yankees, but I was a fan of all of those guys individually yeah. in their other bands. And I knew Ted because Brother Kane had played with Ted. Ted was always a loudly outspoken supporter of Brother Kane. So that's how it happened. And we dug in and worked really hard for about a month. We wrote half a dozen additional songs to the ones I already had and uh, moved forward on making a record, brought in a producer, started laying down all these tracks. Uh, it was a little bit piecemeal, you know, cause Ted had some solo dates and Michael Carloni had just gotten the gig playing drums in Leonard Skinner about two years prior. So Skinner was busy. So, you know, there was a few things we had to juggle. So we finished the record. Uh, it was 11 songs. And, you know, everybody went back home and just kind of waited to get the mixes. And I'll never forget it, man. I got a package in the mail one day, you know, UPS or a FedEx. Yeah. And it had the CD with the, the final mixes. And I put it on and I just, I just thought it was very okay. Nothing... Nothing was making me go, hell yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I sang lead on a couple songs, a lot of harmony vocals with Jack. Tommy Shaw came in and helped finish the record because he had songs that had already been written for it. So that's where it got a little confusing for people. It's like, well, what's going on? And Yeah. You know, man, I just, 
I was just trying to do my job. I didn't get, I didn't get super spiritually connected to it. I just worked hard, did the best I could. They had some bumps in the road with the producer. They weren't sure about the guy that mixed it. You know, again, it wasn't my band. Yeah. I was, I was essentially a side man that they're bringing in. So over the next couple of days, I find out that Ted and Jack and Tommy all reacted to the music the same way I did. Everybody was kind of like, eh, it's okay. And I mean, let's be real. Had there been a song on there, an undeniable song, like, uh, uh, you know, what was their big hit? The ballad higher, high enough. Can you take me higher? There wasn't a song like that on there. There wasn't a hit, you know, like, uh, you know, like a Matchbox 20 hit or, 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 or like, uh, whatever a hit was at that point. That was the other thing, man. Like, what, where did a classic rock band like Damn Yankees fit yeah. on the radio in 2000, 2001? Who's going to yeah. play that? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff kind of working against it, man. And then everybody got busy. Mm-hmm. You know, Jack had Night Ranger dates, Ted had solo dates. Michael had Skinner dates and we all just says, well, well, we'll circle back to this later. And we never circled back. So now it's almost become a little bit of an urban legend in, <laughs> uh, in the uh, classic rock world. Um, one of the songs that Jack and I wrote, he put on a solo record. I wrote a song with Ted that he put on a solo record. Um, and I think Tommy and Jack did a duo album together. And I think one or two of the songs were, were on that. So, uh, yeah, man, it's a cool story. And I, I love all those guys. And um, I run into all of them from time to time. And, you know, we have a laugh and and, and keep on trucking. But uh, I don't know, man. It's, I, don't, I don't usually add damn Yankees to my list of accomplishments because we didn't really do that much. You know, I was in Alice Cooper for five years. I was in Thin Lizzy for five years. Uh, That's a real slice of my life. And there's tons of concerts that we played. You know, we never played a show together in Damn Yankees. Yeah. It was just kind of one of those things. Yeah, it's just Just, something we kind of poked it a little bit. Let's let's poke this and see see what happens. Okay, well, you mentioned writing with Ted now. I I don't know if that's out there or not, but... I, I imagine that just being like a room full of just all this balled up energy. Like I, I just imagine, I just imagine him like sitting in the room trying to write a song with him. Uh, how was that? How did that? Go? Yeah. Well, you know, as a kid from Geraldine, man, I mean, Ted Nugent occupied so much of my record collection in high school, you know, I saw Ted and, and Huntsville at the Civic Center, I think three times, uh, between 79 and 82. Um, Ted is a fierce guitar player. He's one oh, of the yeah. greatest rock guitar players of all Hell, time. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it is not by accident that he, you know, that, that there, there are other things about Ted that are a distraction. That's all calculated. That's exactly sure. how he wants He's it to be. He's a genius. 
and I don't ever, I don't ever get sucked into that, man. Yeah. When Ted and I get together, it's all about family and it's all about music. Oh yeah. Uh, we've we've had a couple conversations about politics. Ted and I do not agree on lots of things, but we can have a very respectful discussion. I mean, as respectful as you can have. Ted Ted is completely deaf in one ear, Andrew. True story. He's totally deaf. Not sort of deaf. One ear is just gone. Gone. So you have to make sure you're sitting on the side of him with the good ear. <laughs> because if, if he can't hear you, which he barely can anyway, then what he's going to do is talk over you. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you can't get a word in edgewise. So I was able to figure that out pretty quick. <laughs> so, I'm, so I make sure I sit on the good side so he'll at least hear what I'm having to say. And, um, but again, man, it's all family and music with, with him and I. So um, we wrote a couple things together with Jack, you know, for that damn Yankees record. But I went to Ted's house after that damn Yankees because he wanted me to come and write for a solo record. And uh, the song that is on his record that we did together is a song called I won't go away. And all it was, man, was I had ripped off a Ted Nugent guitar lick from like, you know, snakeskin cowboys or somebody get me a doctor or something off of that live record that I listened to a thousand times as a kid. And I just said, Hey Ted, I got this riff, check it out. <laughs> so for Ted, so for Ted Nugent, to hear me play guitar and go, Johnson, I like that. I like that, son. Let's write that. We're gonna we're gonna write something around that. Come on, man. That's it's just so so fucking awesome. Uh, it is. Really that's is. one of my it's one of my greatest that's one of my favorite memories about the damn Yankees is Jack Blades, who's awesome. I mean, Jack used to just take the shit out of ted like they would just you know That's all in mind. love all in love and good sport but you know jack wouldn't cut him any slack you know it's like ted get out of here with your bow and arrow man nobody wants <laughs> you know? but uh but jack said one time he goes yeah damon it's a challenge to write with ted because he's just every time he shows up to write songs it's another variation on that riff to great white buffalo <laughs> <laughs> so oh, man. i took i took that to heart andrew so before i went to ted's house i'm like i'm gonna listen to great white buffalo some more before i get there, there and sure enough man the riff i played him was kind of in that orbit and ted goes oh i like that that's, <laughs> that's the greatest story ever <laughs> i love ted man oh god oh Man, the the Whiskey Falls uh, thing, y'all had a hit. Man, we did. We did. We did. And I, I mean, that was all, it's hard to believe, man, that that's been 15 years ago. So impossible to believe that that's how long ago that's been. And um, Andrew, I thought that was my ticket right there. Yeah. I I thought that after everything I had been through, the ups and downs. Um, listen, man, it has never 
not been a challenge to balance my family life with my work life because my work life involves so much travel and being gone and not being home to help my wife to be with my kids and be at those events at school and just be a part of their daily life, man. So I felt like Whiskey Falls was going to solve all those problems. You know, I love how country musicians tour. They go out and they play on the weekends and they're right back home in Nashville Sunday morning, you know? Yeah. And they, and they do that week in and week out. Uh, I was quickly fatiguing on, you know, being an Alice Cooper, as awesome as it was, the hardest thing for me was having to be gone for six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks. Yeah. And have a new wife at home and a, and a, my fourth child, another baby. That was hard, man. It was hard on my family. It was hard on me. So... When Buck Johnson called me, he had met the other two guys in Whiskey Falls, and he said, Damon, this is your future right here, man. Like, these guys need you because you're going to bring an authentic gunslinger, Geraldine, Alabama, guitar player thing to these great songs that they already have because that, that harmony sound was already there. So when I added my voice as a fourth singer, come on, man. We did sound like the Eagles. We did sound like you know, Fleetwood Mac. Um, it was special. And we had a little bit of infrastructure. We had some investment capital, had some people helping us, you know, get it off the ground. Yeah. And that, that first single off that, for, off that album made some noise. And we, we almost, I, either we almost did or barely cracked the top 20, which was an accomplishment. Yeah. And, and people were talking about the band. And, you know, and unfortunately, the big real estate collapse at the end of 07 going into 2008, we just got sucked up in that. Mm -hmm. um, we were on an independent label, Midas Records, here in Nashville. And the guy that owned the label, Andrew, all of his money was in real estate. Mm. So when that real estate crash happened, you know, his, his business manager called him like one phone call. It's like, Hey man, you've got to start circling the wagons and, yeah. and trimming some of these expenses. And I think literally the first thing to go was his record label. <sighs> and we thought, you know, we felt pretty confident, man, that we would just transition to another label. No problem. And it was a problem because at that time, all, all the labels were, we're circling the wagons and having to be very frugal with their spending and who they were signing and who they were going to, who they were going to get behind. So it was a real disappointment for me that that thing didn't, didn't happen uh, because we put a ton of work into it. Um, look, man, no situation is perfect, but there were way more pluses than there were minuses about that band. And again, I just envisioned that that would be the way for my family and yeah. me to to really be in a place that that made the most sense for us. So uh, I always appreciate when folks asked about Whiskey Falls. Thank you. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I 
not speaking for you, of course, but uh, I'm just trying to put myself in the situation. You know, uh, you've had all these, you had all these jobs. And like you said, you know, these, and these were still in the days of, you know, marketing yourself on radio. And that was getting harder to do with the rock stuff and the classic rock stuff too. But this was a new thing. Like it could have been a, it could have been the, the thing because it could have been marketed on radio. Uh, and it was, but I mean, it could have been, like you said, you could have the schedule you wanted, basically. You wouldn't have to go overseas if you didn't want to, you know, you right. have to be gone for 10 weeks. Uh, well, that, that's well said the way you just described it. It, it was like, we were perfect for country mm-hmm. radio. We were perfect. Whereas brother Kane had struggled to maintain a place at radio brother uh, whiskey falls was not struggling man yeah and and we you know we were we were in that new wave of artists like the other people just starting right then were people like luke bryan little big town uh dirks bentley had just had a hit the year before lee bryce um I mean, there's several others, man, that it's escaping me right now. But Luke Bryan, for sure, man, like he was he was brand new. He had his first record out and he was in a bus pulling a trailer just like we were. Yeah. Oh. um, Oh, good Lord, man. My my age is showing. Who's. um, Who's the other guy from Georgia? That's play stadiums now. Um uh from georgia yeah uh, uh aldean jason not, aldean. not aldean J- jason was like the year after our first record came out he started jason came out um oh this is embarrassing huge <laughs> huge artist huge artist plays a gibson hummingbird and uh and ball I, cap honestly oh, i'm not I, on that type of country i couldn't tell you I'm not. I'm not yeah. really into it. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna come to me in a second. Um, I'll hit you. But you know, we just we belonged, man. We we were a perfect fit. We were just a perfect fit, and uh, mm. it was frustrating that it didn't happen. I mean, I sure was grateful to Alice Cooper that uh, he gave me another job right after that because I I left Alice to do Whiskey Falls and. I worked oh. hard on that for two years, and then I and then I went back to Alice Cooper, which I was I was grateful for. Now, did you know him back from the Brother Kane days? Did you meet Alice Cooper? No, I did not. I'd never met him before, Andrew. But uh, there was an Alabama connection there, uh, and that was my longtime friend Eric Dover. Uh, Eric Eric had done a lot of things. He had been the singer in Slash's uh, band Snake Pit. When, when Slash first put his kind of solo thing together, it was called Snake Pit. Eric sang in that. He was in the great power pop band Jellyfish. Uh, not as an original member, but he, he joined that band uh, in the 90s. So Eric landed in the Alice Cooper band, and he, had, he was there for about three years, I think. And he was ready to move on to his next kind of artist action. And... Um, they needed somebody to finish up a six-week tour 
at the end of 2004 and he recommended me. Wow. He said, this is the guy. He said, if this guy's available, he's, he's the one. So, uh, they, Alice probably would have never heard the name Damon Johnson had it not been for Eric Dover. So I'm, I'm grateful to him for that. Yeah. And you did that for quite a while. Yeah, man. About two and a half years before whiskey falls, another two and a half afterwards. And, um, you know, again, man, I was, <laughs> you know, I was grateful for the paycheck, grateful for all that free golf I got to play with Alice. Uh, yeah, I heard he's. But, but I was right back to yeah. being gone yeah. all the time. And now by this time, Linda and I had our second child together. So um, I was already starting to get a little restless. Mm -hmm. And then the, that was when the Thin Lizzy opportunity came along. Uh, and that was also going to be just a part-time thing. So I left Alice to go play with Thin Lizzy, and then I was going to just go to doing my own thing again. And then Thin Lizzy wound up lasting a while. Uh, did you ever come across uh, Nita Strauss? That oh, of course. Of course. Man, she's, her, she's, like, a, she's like a master like marketer. I mean, she is like, she's got the brand thing down. Oh, she's got it down. She's Man. got it down. And listen, Nita represents the next generation. Like, yeah. that's how it's done in the 21st century. Yeah. She, yeah. she is absolutely a, a, you know, a role model for how it's done. Yeah. It's not easy. She works her ass off. But she definitely is, has, has done a masterful job of marketing it. And I mean, I, you know, dude, I struggle. I struggle with that. You know, I feel I, I'm, I'm definitely in a place in my life where I'm sort of ready to sort of embrace, you know, the third phase in my career, the phase where you start to kind of say, well, this is, this is where I am and I'm cool right here. Yeah. Like, do I have to start a TikTok account and post videos every day just to feel relevant or to maybe connect with some new fans? Well, the answer to that is, yeah, you do have to. Because right now, that's all you've got. That's all you've got is social media is all you've got to find like-minded people reach fans. Um, and I struggle with that, buddy. I struggle with it because, man, I get so tired of talking about myself or taking pictures of myself or, you know, here's me at dinner, you know, yeah. or here's this new guitar lick I learned. It's like, yeah, come on, man. Jimmy Page never did that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I sound I sound like the old man that I am becoming right now, Andrew. But I, I'm just I'm just admitting to you that these yeah. are the thoughts I have. Look, I'm cool with social media. I I, I think you follow me on some of the platforms, man. I, I uh -huh. post some stuff, and I, I I love to put up, you know, to be promoting upcoming shows. Or here's a here's a photo of, of a new guitar I got, or here's my daughter and, you know, my kids at Christmas time. It's cool, man. 
am I motivated? Am I like, do I love it? No, I don't love it. I don't love it. I, I'm grateful to my wife and my kids because they, they encourage me like, hey, dad, you need to make another post. I'm like, you're right. I will. Uh, yeah. I will. I, I'm kind of a, uh, well, I'm very much an old soul. So I'm right there. I'm right there with you. Uh, I do post uh, as much as I can, especially to market the podcast is what, what I've been doing lately. Uh, but it takes time. You know, it takes a lot of time and effort and focus to do this stuff. And some people maybe just throw stuff up there. But I try to make everything kind of look good. And, you know, I, I, I do. I struggle with it, too, man. I don't want to post. You got to think of something to post every time, every day. And it's a way of life for some people, but not for me. So I, I'm with you. Well, you know, you just got to be realistic. You know, you got to tell yourself, uh, is this helping me? Mm-hmm. Am I am I enjoying this? Mm-hmm. Am, am I growing? And am I doing what I really want to do? If yeah. the answers to, to most or all of those is yes, then then that's awesome, man. Carry on. Yeah. I just know that it gets in the way of some other things that I know I should be doing. Yeah. Like my fit, like my physical activity, you know, my fitness and my songwriting. I get resentful, man, when I feel like I'm putting too much time into Instagram rather than sitting here at this desk with an acoustic guitar and a pen and paper and a cup of coffee trying to tell a story, you know? Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, ha- how did the Thin Lizzy thing come about? Going back to that. So- so Alice Cooper played a concert in Dublin, Ireland in the summer of 2011. It was Def Leppard, Alice Cooper, Thin Lizzy. And Scott Gorham from Thin Lizzy is, was as big a guitar hero as Gary Rosington for me as a kid. And I had met Scott a couple of years prior on the golf course with Alice. So he and I had kept in touch. So I was thrilled that they were going to be playing with us on that show. <clears throat> so I reconnected with Scott and it was at that show that word got back to me that then Lizzie was going to need a new guitar player mm. because uh, Scott's guitar partner at that time was the great Richard Fortas that plays guitar in Guns N' Roses. So Richard was about to have to go back to Guns N' Roses. So it was just the timing, I think, of me reconnecting with Scott, his band and management, seeing me play with Alice. And then when they got wind that I might be interested, you know, then the discussions ramped up pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, my family and I decided that, you know, it just felt like, hey, man, if I don't if I don't take this chance to play with then Lizzie, I'm going to regret that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm grateful to Alice because he, he was super supportive. He knew what a fan I was. And, um, you know, man, Alice is just the greatest. He's just the greatest. And, um, I felt, I certainly felt a commitment to Coop because he was in the middle of a tour. But it was my wife that kind of put it all into perspective. She said, Damon, Alice Cooper's had 30 guitar players in his band. Over the years, she said, Thin Lizzie's had four, you know, 
<laughs> She's like, and you can be one of them. She goes, Alice is going to be just fine. He'll be fine. He'll get wow. somebody else to, to play schools out. Yeah. No more Mr. Nice Guy. She goes, you can go. Now you can go play Jailbreak and the boys are back in town. And oh, the Cowboy and, song. Yeah, Goosebumps, God. man. So, uh, yeah. I mean, that's how it happened. So, again, timing yeah. and some previous relationships. You just you never know, man. You never know who's on the other end of the phone when the, when it rings. You know, they were another one of those bands that was so unique, so ident- instantly identifiable when you turn on a record. You know, Boys Are Back in Town, the Cowboy song. I mean, any of them. You just know right off the bat who the hell you're listening to. Uh, yeah, Phil Lynott is one of the iconic, oh man, u- unique frontmen of all time. You know, there were so many great like white blues singers, yeah, from that era, especially from Great Britain. Um, but nobody sounded like Phil Lynott. Nobody looked like Phil Lynott, and nobody infused poetry into their lyric writing the way Phil Lynott did just the greatest rock star. Um, you know, it's just a shame that Lizzie didn't have the impact in North America that they did over in Europe. Uh, but Phil is as revered over there, you know, as Steven Tyler and, and, you know, Eddie Van Halen is here in, in America, or the Eagles, for that matter. I mean, he's, yeah. you know, Ronnie Van Zant. Phil yeah. Lina is the Ronnie Van Zant mm. of Europe. I'm just telling you, he is, man. He's, he's that level of iconic. Yeah, I wonder why that is. I wonder why they, they it didn't kind of cross over to here. Because, you know, they're very well known in, our, in the U.S., but... You know, you're right. They're not really on that, like, tip of the top of the mountain when you think about. Well, there's some things you can you can read about, you know, if you if you research it even a little bit, Andrew. But they had some unfortunate timing come their way. They had a big tour booked in America and Phil got hepatitis. Yeah. Uh, so they had to cancel. <clears throat> there was another big tour booked and uh, one of the other guitar players cut his hand and that affected the dates. Um, and then, you know, sad, but true, man, Phil got strung out on the hard drugs. Yeah. And then right after having that peak of great records, the quality of the records started to decline. So they literally missed their shot. Mm. If they'd, if they'd have been able to tour here when they were supposed to, and if Phil and Scott could have stayed, maybe not sober, but n- not strung out on heroin, I mean yeah. that's going to take that's going to take anybody down. Yeah, and they just couldn't overcome it. And you know that classic tale of a big rock star being surrounded by yes men. You know nobody was going to talk any sense into him. Yeah. Uh, well, holler at me about the Black Star Riders. Because this was kind of a re, a revamp, I guess, situation of Thin Lizzy, was it not? Yeah, man. The way that worked, Andrew, is so I joined in 2011 
we toured Europe as Thin Lizzy in 2012. And then it was decided that the band is going to make a new album. Mm. So the singer, Ricky Warwick, and I, of all the people in Thin Lizzy at that time, we had the most experience as songwriters. So we knew it was going to be a tall order and it was going to take a lot of work. So we focused and we started hammering out. I mean, I bet we wrote 20 songs, man. We would get up every day and Ricky would have an acoustic. I'd show it with a riff or he'd have a melody. And we just, man, we started putting them together. We finally played some of them for Scott Gorham. And it was to our relief, Scott got very excited about what he heard. Well, then in the 11th hour, it was decided that we weren't going to put it out as Thin Lizzy. It wouldn't be right spiritually uh, to call it Thin Lizzy. You know, that this was different than Skinner. You know, Skinner had already been out playing shows for four or five years. And Johnny was Ronnie's little brother. And Gary Rosington had been there from day one. There was no one like that in Thin Lizzy anymore, you know? Yeah. So we had all these great songs. We had a record deal. So the powers that be kind of put their heads together and we decided these songs are strong, really strong. So let's put it out, but let's call it a different name. Mm. And Scott Gorham was a part of that. You know, Scott being an original Thin Lizzy member, um, that really gave it some cachet, that gave it some extra star power. So, yeah, uh, I did three albums with Black Star Writers, and the first two especially absolutely sounded like Thin Lizzy. Uh, you know, I mean, that was our task. That was the mission statement from the beginning. And no one got, you didn't get any argument from me. I'm like, you're telling me I can write some songs and sound as much like Thin Lizzy as I want to? <laughs> fuck, <laughs> fuck yes, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Pardon, pardon my French. Um, I was thrilled. I was thrilled. And I sat right here at this desk, man, making demos and putting harmony guitar parts on there and sending them to Scott. And he would call me and go, damn, bud, that sounds killer. Yeah, this is going to be great. Wow. So so um, it was a thrill, man. It was a thrill. It was a lot of work, harder, very hard to launch a brand new band. Yes, there were people in the press that knew it was the Thin Lizzy guys and the diehard fans knew it was the Thin Lizzy guys, but to the average Joe Blow off the street, off the street, it's just some other band name that they've never heard of. Yeah. So they're like, "Why should I care?" Mm -hmm. Well, we live in a a fast paced world, man. You know, people oh, yeah. are scrolling through their phones like this. Yeah. So, how are you going to make them stop and go? Wait a minute. Here's why you should listen to this. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, without, without traditional radio and traditional promotion, it's just, it's hard, man. It's so hard. So hard. It is. 
you know, the internet's good for a lot of things and, and getting music out there because you can be on the same platform, but who the hell's going to know about it? You're not, Andrew. And listen, man, I, after all these years and the things that I've done, it's like I go in cycles. I go in cycles where I get excited about something and then about three or four years into it, I start to get restless. I start to fatigue creatively. Burnout. Yeah. And I start to question, is it worth me being away from my family as yeah. much as it is? And one more time, that's where I wound up with Black Star Writers. You know, we were building an audience on a whole other continent. North America was very apathetic to Black Star Writers. I mean, listen, Thin Lizzy had a hard time coming to North America and selling tickets. How is the offshoot band of Thin Lizzy going to do any better? Yeah. We, did, we didn't do any better. So that was when I decided once and for all, I'm going home. I'm going to focus 100% on my own music. It's going to be hard work. The audiences are going to be small, but I'm just going to hustle like I know how to hustle. And I'm going to be home. I'm going to have control over my schedule. I can drive those kids to school in the morning and pick them up every afternoon, be with my wife at the house, write songs, make my own records. I mean, I live in the greatest musical city on the planet in Nashville. <clears throat> and I got a Rolodex full of badass musicians, you know, if I want to go in the studio and record some stuff. And that's what I did. That's what I started doing in 2018. And that's, uh, you know, I put out a, a live record, kind of a career retrospective. Uh, put out an EP of some new stuff. And then uh, a big important record for me was my solo album in 2019, Memoirs of an Uprising. I love that record so much, man. It's, it's, it's one of my more complete creative statements I've ever made. Uh, produced it myself. No big, you know, not that many people know about it, but my little fan base knew about it. Yeah, because I I hammered it on social media, and I started playing those songs, <clears throat> and was very very fulfilled. And uh, yeah, having to hustle, man, having to hustle, playing solo acoustic, playing shows with my band when I could. Um, and then I started a second solo record, Battle Lessons. I stripped it down to just a trio that I called the Get Ready. Damon Johnson and to get ready another record artistically that I'm just as proud of those two records man are so dear to my heart Andrew and there's no way that the creativity the songwriting the guitar playing on those two records there's no way that that did not play a role and Ricky Medlock calling me about skinning. And for my manager, Kevin, to start thinking about Brother Kane again. So those, those two records are so important in my story. Uh, as much as any Brother Kane record, as much as any Black Star Writers record. <laughs> so um, 
I've just surrendered to the universe that I don't have control over anything, man. Yeah. I don't have control over anything. And what I want to do for the next 10 years is just get up every day and work hard and do it in this house with my wife and my kids. Now I got two grandkids. I just, I feel like I'm living my best life, brother. So instead of trying to make these giant decisions, I'm just kind of releasing it to the universe and letting it kind of guide me. Yeah. Um, and so far she has not let me down. And I think if I can just stay humble, stay humble, man, be humble, be as authentic as I possibly can. And, uh, take some time every day to just be grateful and be quiet and, and shut the noise off and, uh, just, you know, give some thanks that, uh, the chips are going to fall where they may brother. That's, can't really say it any better than that. Oh, uh, I mean, you know, the Skinner thing is ironically sort of, like the Whiskey Falls thing would have been, schedule-wise, except for a lot less shows, I'm sure. Probably 30 it, or 40 a year is what they do, I guess. Well, it is that dream that I had in Whiskey Falls. I'm living it now with Skinner. You know, we leave the house on Thursday. We're back home, home on Sunday. On, back home on Sunday. Some Sunday mornings, Andrew, I get home before the kids even get out of bed. It's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. And they're like, where were you last night, Dad? Oh, we were in Chicago. We played to about <laughs> 24,000 people. It was awesome. <laughs> you know? Um, it's a crazy story, Andrew. I, uh, I've, I've definitely worked hard, man, but there's certainly a component of it that's been out of my control. You sure. know, the, the man upstairs has been... Yeah. Or the woman... Or the, or the woman upstairs has... Uh, has blessed me. And uh, I just want to do whatever I can to uh, to man continue to manifest that music in the world and in my life and in my family's life. We had some fan questions here. All right, Chris W. wants to know, new Brother Kane album this year? Definitely a new Brother Kane song. Uh, not ready to tackle a whole album, but definitely want to put out a couple new songs. Got some great ones sitting in the hopper. We just need to get them recorded. Uh, uh, Craig W., how about some more Slave to the System? Craig, I love you, buddy. It ain't going <laughs> to happen. Um, that's a band we didn't talk about, Andrew. Yeah. Pound for pound, as great of an album as anything I've ever done. Some of my favorite lyrics I've ever been a part of are on that album. Um, wow. Love those guys. And it was a, it was a beautiful moment in time that we captured and it's a real piece of creative work. Um, love those songs, man. All right. Champy on Twitter. Uh, what is DJ's favorite Van Halen song as a fan, as a musician to play and to sing? <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite, my favorite. My favorite as a fan is Running With The Devil. My favorite one to play 
is I'm the one off that first record. And any guitar player that hears me say that, their first words out of their mouth are going to be like, he can't play I'm the one. Well, I get pretty damn close. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever attempt it in public, but I love playing that. And uh, what was the end of the, what was the other question? Oh, uh, to sing. Yeah. I'm not very good at singing Van Halen. I can't sing like Roth or Hagar. Sammy Hagar is one of the best damn lead singers <laughs> of all time. So uh, I usually leave the singing up to somebody else. All right. He's got another one. How do you feel about fans that strive to sing Brother Kane's songs to perfection at karaoke nights because get ready songs aren't available? <laughs> <laughs> this guy's serious well, business on us now he does let's figure out a way to get those get ready songs available it is always an honor hugely flattering i love it anytime somebody wants to sing brother kane songs uh i've had the unique experience of hearing it happen a few times and it always makes me smile man makes me proud stone cold lee snotty on twitter uh, what would a 12-year-old Damon say if you told him you were going to play guitar for Thin Lizzy and Skinner? He wouldn't believe it. It's just there's not enough capacity in my young brain. It, it, it would be like it would be like some fantasy movie, you know, like some Disney movie, some Alice in Wonderland meets Aladdin you know, rubbing the, the genie, the lamp, the genie comes out of the lamp. It's just not fathomable, not possible. That'll never happen. There's no way I'm going to grow up and play in Thin Lizzie and Leonard Skinner. Ain't, ain't possible. Joel W., what do you regret passing on or that didn't happen? Wow, that's a great question. You know, man, I definitely think sometimes I wonder what would have happened if we hadn't have broken up Brother Kane. If we'd have just taken a minute to reset, slow down, everybody take a break, but don't panic and blow it up. Let's just keep it together. And then let's come back in a year. Let's, let's everybody get healthy. Everybody figure out things at home and kind of get, get resettled. And then let's come back. Mm. We'll never know. Um, look, man, Everything that happened to me after Brother Kane has been incredible. Uh, and I don't know that I would trade those for, you know, having the original band back together. But I do think about it. Um, did a couple of auditions that didn't happen. Uh, but at some point later, it, it's like, yeah, it's good that that one didn't happen, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, very, very few regrets. For sure. Uh, he also asked, who was your favorite to work with? I loved working with Sammy Hagar. Sammy's one of the most soulful humans I've ever been around. Uh, also, an incessant work ethic. Uh, he's working hard to this day. What is it? It's, it's noon on the West Coast right now on a Sunday. I guarantee you Sammy's doing something. He's promoting a, a liquor or he's writing a song or he's arguing with his manager about tour dates. He's a, a soulful guy. <clears throat> Alice Cooper was incredible to work with. Um, 
just taught me so much about performing, taught me so much about how to be a father and a husband and still be a rock star. He's a role model in that way, for sure. And Joel's got one more. He's blowing us up here. All right. Uh, you have such an amazing career. I often say you are the Rod Carew of guitar players. I think your <laughs> career would be an amazing book. Any plans? Well, it has been discussed. Um, it's been it's been talked about a lot in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, it really ramped up after the Skinner thing happened. Um, got a buddy in St. Louis that's a uh, kind of an editor that does some book editing and. He started this conversation about four years ago. So when the Skinner thing happened, he called me. He's like, dude, come on. Like, <laughs> like you need another chapter. Now you got a killer chapter. So I don't know, man. I think um, I'm certainly proud of my story. And I think it's an interesting story. I would just want the book to be great. I wouldn't want it to be lame or, uh, you know, done quickly. I'm a fan of a good uh, you know, music biography. I've read okay. so many of them. So uh, I'd want to partner with somebody that can help me do it and do it authentic. Well, we appreciate y'all's questions using hashtag picking it out and uh, appreciate your time, Damon. It's good to finally meet you. And I got to say, there's a picture after Gary Roston passed that you put on your social media that I saw. You're sitting with him, and I think you said y'all are, you know, by the look you, that y'all are playing Simple Man. And uh, that picture, for some reason, I don't know why, just looking at it before I read the caption, almost brought me to tears. Uh, it was just a powerful, it's a powerful thing. Um, so thank you for sharing that, and I'm sure that you were just uh, soaking all that up from Gary. That day. Well, I, pre I appreciate you sharing that with me, Andrew. Uh, I'm so grateful for that picture that our friend Dalton took. Um, he kind of does a lot of documenting of things for Skinner, does their social media. And he sent me that picture about two days after Gary passed. And I was, I was certainly very moved by it. And I don't know, man, I just felt compelled to share that story with the fans um and i appreciate that it the story connected with people and the photograph connected and i however long skinner continues it just it just feels like church to me it feels like i have a responsibility to do my small part to take care of that music and to, to be a part of telling the story and celebrating those songs. Uh, Gary said it himself. The songs are bigger than anybody. He said, the songs are bigger than me. He goes, they're bigger than Ronnie Van Zant. And, um, I, I got, I have no way of knowing really what the future holds, but I can just assure you and, anybody else that's a fan of that band that is just in insurmountable love coming off the stage from those musicians. And I've already seen that love reciprocated between the audience and the people on stage. And it's just such a humbling place to be 
Um, so, uh, however long, you know, Johnny and Ricky and the family want to keep going, uh, I certainly would love to, uh, to do, put my best foot forward and always be respectful to Gary and pay tribute to the band and to his great songwriting and, and great guitar playing, man. It's just the highlight of my career. Man, I appreciate you hanging out today with us. Uh, good to finally meet you. I guess this is a meeting. Yeah, uh, man, this counts. Listen, Andrew, brother, thank you. Thank you for thank having you. me. I'm uh, really impressed with you, buddy, and just appreciate you're that. great. You're a great singer. I want to wish you continued success. And, uh, you know, man, we're all in this together. We just yeah. got to lift each other up and support each other. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you asking me some great questions and let me tell my story and, uh, you know, continued success to you, man, to you and your family. And uh, I hope we can get in the same room together sometime soon. Yeah, man, let's make it happen. And as always, uh, if y'all appreciate the podcast and what we're doing here, uh, you can show your support by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcast and telling us how much you like the podcast and subscribing on the YouTube channel. Uh, the videos, the full videos will be up on the YouTube channel of all these and there'll be clips as well. Uh, maybe if your friend, you have a music friend, uh, it's not familiar with the podcast. You can, you know, send some of these shorter clips from the full episode and they can kind of get introduced to it. It's a good way to get introduced to it. And, uh, we appreciate y'all tuning in to picking it out. And we'll see you next time.